Welcome to Leading from Behind, a podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy, produced by the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I'm Barry McClatchy, and this is episode number 14, an introduction to follow-up sessions in solution-focused practice. Well, thanks again for joining me here on Leading from Behind. This marks the first in a series of episodes devoted to follow-up sessions in solution-focused practice. We'll begin this episode by talking briefly about the position we take in inviting clients to return for a follow-up appointment, as this has some implications about when or if they do so. From there, though, we'll be moving into a more general introduction to the process, elements, and skills used by the solution-focused practitioner in second and subsequent sessions. Now, in upcoming episodes, we'll continue with a more in-depth examination of this subject as we return to the ongoing case example we've used in our look at first sessions. Finally, in the closing resource segment of this episode, I'll identify two more books that might be of interest to new practitioners. One is a classic of sorts, while the other is a more recent publication. So, once again, thank you for joining me here on Leading from Behind. I hope you'll find this episode useful in your understanding of solution-focused practice. Before we move into our beginning discussion of follow-up sessions, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the invitation to return that we extend to the client at the conclusion of the first session. Now, this subject is probably of greatest interest if you're working in a counseling environment that's voluntary and appointment-based, such as a community mental health clinic, a school, or a private practice, as opposed to a residential program, inpatient program, or a service where the client is mandated to attend therapy. Now, as we've talked about in previous episodes, solution-focused therapy isn't necessarily structured as a course of treatment. Instead, we approach each session as if it might be the last or, in the case of a first session, as if it might be the one and only client contact. As a result of this, and of course our assumptions about people, problems, and change, we typically extend a very soft invitation to return, not only at the end of the first session, but in any subsequent one as well. So, as we demonstrated in our case example with our client Rachel, I might simply say, I certainly invite you to come back again if or when you think it might be helpful to do so. Now, of course, clinicians who use more problem-focused approaches might shudder at this idea. Often, under those approaches, regular ongoing appointments are often booked, sometimes even multiple ones in advance. And in some cases, these appointments are maintained for considerable periods on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. But in our experience, allowing clients to choose when or even if they'll return for follow-up tends to be a more useful practice. First, we notice that many clients tend to return later than the one- or two-week standard. Of course, some may return earlier, but this seems to be the exception rather than the rule. Second, this practice also tends to result in fewer no-shows, since clients are also more intentional in choosing when to return. Now, the key point overall here is that client preferences rather than therapeutic structure should be the priority. And, as we'll see in a future episode devoted to feedback-informed treatment practices, Honoring client preferences is linked to more positive outcomes. Now, interestingly, this invitational approach to follow-up sessions also offers a potential remedy to one of the more enduring problems in public mental health services. 
In our experience, improved access to these services can sometimes be achieved in part by moving away from the idea that clients must automatically return on a regular basis or must engage in lengthy courses of treatment. This is especially evident in those cases where therapeutic relationships are maintained without any clear evidence of change. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that in solution-focused practice that we don't ever extend a rigorous or more specific invitation to return for follow-up. As Insu Kimberg once said famously, just because we're solution-focused doesn't mean we're stupid. Clearly, if our clinical judgment tells us that a person is at risk for harming themselves or others or is coping with some kind of challenging circumstance without much support, we would certainly be more directive in our handling of follow-up sessions. For the most part, though, we would certainly encourage new practitioners of solution-focused therapy to embrace the belief in our clients' abilities to determine when or if they return, and to understand the potential good reasons for honoring client preferences over therapeutic convention. So let's take our first step into the subject of follow-up sessions in solution-focused therapy. Again, today's episode is meant as an overall introduction, so we'll be looking at everything we discuss today in more detail during future episodes. So I'll begin by saying that follow-up sessions require the same skills and many of the same elements that we've examined during our look at first sessions. The key difference, perhaps, is that the structure of follow-up sessions tends to be more fluid and, of course, will vary according to the many possibilities the clients might bring through the door. Now, when a client returns for a second or any subsequent session, the formal beginning of the solution-focused conversation always begins with a very distinct question. And that question is this, what's better? This simple, yet radically different beginning question is a key element of solution-focused practice. It also marks the starting point for a series of follow-up questions that invite clients to continue their movement towards their best hopes. Now, this opening question, what's better, is often characterized as a presuppositional question. We assume that, in keeping with our central beliefs and solution-focused practice, that something is better for the client since the previous session. It's also important to note here that we have to be very precise in our language with this question. So, for example, if I were to ask, has anything been better, or is anything better, I'm asking something very different than what's better. Using has or is makes the question a close-ended one. It restricts the client to choosing either yes or no. Secondly, the question no longer reflects a belief or presupposition that something is better. Now, the question, what's better, is also a rather novel one in comparison to what many clients expect or experience when they have conversations with a counselor or therapist. They're usually far more used to the questions like, how are you doing, or how are things going? These questions, of course, invite conversations about problems, something that, from a solution-focused perspective, moves the conversation towards what's wrong with people, what's not working, and a more therapist-directed conversation about what people need to do to solve their difficulties. And, since clients often expect to talk about problems and what's not going well, asking what's better can take some clients off guard. So this is where we, as solution-focused practitioners, need to access the same level of gentle patience and persistence that we use in inviting clients to think about their preferred futures. Now, as you get used to asking this question in your practice, you'll be pleased to discover that the vast majority of clients are certainly able to talk about what's better, even when, overall, things might be the same or even worse. 
Now, the first utterance by the client in response to the question, what's better, begins a conversational process in the follow-up session that was described by Berg, DeShazer, and their team by the acronym EARS. The E stands for elicit. We do this by asking, what's better? And of course, the client may respond in a manner that requires us to seek some behavioral detail in the same manner that we do when deconstructing language during the client's description of his preferred future in a first session. The A stands for amplify. When we hear the client's first indication of something that's better, we then seek to amplify what they did that was helpful. Often we do this through the use of indirect compliments as we seek details of the improvement. In Kimberg, for example, was very well known for often saying wow in a very genuine and heartfelt manner whenever a client noted something that was better or helpful. In other instances, this is also shown through the use of relationship questions, such as, who else noticed this, or what did your partner notice, and so on. The R stands for reinforce. Again, similar to our efforts during conversations about the preferred future, this is done by asking questions about how a particular effort or behavior helped, or how it made a difference to the client. And finally, the S in ears stands for start again. For the most part, we simply move the conversation forward by asking, what else is better? So the process of eliciting, amplifying, and reinforcing what's been better for the client is in an ideal situation where the solution-focused practitioner will spend considerable time in a follow-up session. And of course, there'll be a point where the question, what else is better, results in a response that suggests that everything that has been better has been covered. So at that point in the follow-up session, barring any setbacks or new issues noted by the client, we would proceed by asking one or more scaling questions. The most common one, of course, would ask the client to say where she is on a scale of 1 to 10 now, where 10 might be her best hopes have been realized, and 1 is the opposite. Additional scaling questions might then follow, depending on one's clinical judgment. I might ask, for example, a scaling question about confidence. So I might say, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 10 is that you're very confident to simply maintain where you're at right now, and 1 is the opposite, where would you be? And if that number is relatively high, I might be curious then about what the client knows about herself that's helping this confidence to be where it's at today. A further element then in the follow-up session would be to ask one or more questions about how the client might notice a next small sign of change. Again, this question would focus on what the client would notice or see rather than what they must or should do next. And, depending on the context of the conversation, I might also ask a relationship question, such as, what might your best friend notice that would tell them that some kind of small change has happened? Finally, as we would do in a first session, we would move towards ending the main conversation and take a break to consider feedback. Generally speaking, in follow-up sessions, compliments tend to center in on the client's efforts or hard work in achieving improvements, or perhaps in how he is managed in the face of setbacks. Validation is often focused on the understandable impact of setbacks. A restatement of what's important to the client would then follow, usually accompanied by a general noticing task where the client is again encouraged to notice times that are better. Now, of course, it would be wonderful to suggest that our clients will always return and talk solely about what's better. In reality, of course, clients will return with all kinds of variations in what has transpired since the previous session. In some cases, clients will report that some things were better and then things got worse. In other instances, they might report that overall things are essentially unchanged. 
Or, unfortunately, they might return to tell us that things are worse and nothing at all has been better. But despite these variations, there are still tremendous opportunities for the solution-focused practitioner to engage the client in a helpful conversation that's focused on what's wanted, what helps, and indirectly taps into the client's strengths, skills, and resilience. So, for example, when things have been better and then worsened, we still want to elicit, amplify, and reinforce the better that preceded the worse. Secondly, even when things have been the same, there's still the possibility that something small might have been better, but wasn't easy to notice. So I might ask, for example, was there one day or part of a day that stood out as being even a little bit better than others? And if something is identified, I can follow this up by asking, what was different on this day? Or how did you manage to do this? Even in the absence of anything at all that has been better, there remains lots of room for the solution-focused practitioner to be curious about some things. So, for example, when things are unchanged and nothing has been better, we still presuppose that the client has been doing something that prevented things from being worse. This position is reflected in questions like, so what were you doing that helped things to be the same and not worse? Or, simply, how come things aren't worse? And of course, in cases where nothing is better and things really are worse, we still want to focus in on what our clients were doing that helped, even in some small way. So again, for example, I might ask a question like, what's helped, even just a little bit, in the face of these setbacks? Or, quite simply, what's helped you to manage? Now, in cases of setbacks or the absence of change, we can also tap into the client's wisdom and worldview. I might show my curiosity about this by asking, so what have you learned that might be helpful from here? Or what have you learned that perhaps you didn't know before? It's also possible in follow-up sessions that what was important to the client in the first session is no longer important in the follow-up session. In these instances, it could be that the original presenting concern has been resolved or has been replaced in importance by something else. The important thing here is to return to our first session stance and make efforts to uncover what the client's best hopes from the conversation might be. In fact, returning to this discussion of the client's best hopes is a very good strategy for those times when it's becoming apparent that, as a therapist, you're no longer certain about what the client wants from the work together. Now, regardless of the many variations of what clients bring back to a follow-up session, the solution-focused therapist will still ultimately move the conversation towards a scaling question that allows clients to identify where they are from a progress standpoint in relation to their preferred future. And, of course, we would invite some description from the client about next small signs of change. And finally, we would conclude all follow-up sessions with a break, followed by end-of-session feedback. So, in closing this very general discussion of follow-up sessions, it's important to note that they can certainly be more challenging for new practitioners of solution-focused therapy. As a result, we often encourage those who are learning the approach to proceed slowly and recognize that it's understandable if you fall off track. Often, it can be useful to simply begin by focusing on building confidence in the process of asking what's better, and in the amplifying and reinforcing of the client's responses. Now, as mentioned several times already, we'll be continuing with our examination of follow-up sessions in more detail, and I hope to provide lots of examples of the questions, skills, and processes that we've introduced in this episode. In the resource segment of the podcast this week, I'd like to note two books that might be of interest to you. As always, you can find the links to these books on the podcast page of our website at hbtc.ca. 
The first book is one that I would call a bit of a classic. It's a fairly small book, but it covers a great deal of ground. The book is called Solution Talk, Hosting Therapeutic Conversations. It was published in 2001 and was written by Finland's Ben Furman and Tapani Ahola. Filled with lots of case examples, this book does a nice job of articulating the significant differences in how we construct conversations that focus on what people want, rather than engaging in problem-saturated discussions. Ben Furman, by the way, is the principal behind the Helsinki Brief Therapy Institute. He's been active in solution-focused and solution-oriented approaches to helping people and organizations. His website is certainly worth a look and can be found at benfurman.com. Now, the second book is a relatively new one and one that I'll admit that I'm not really familiar with. So if you've had a look at it, please feel free to let us know your thoughts. The book is entitled Solution-Focused Therapy for the Helping Professions. It was written by Barry Winbolt of the United Kingdom and was published in 2011. Now, what stands out from a perusal of the information about this book is that in addition to examining the process and skills used in solution-focused practice, it also looks at how the approach might be used in a wide variety of agency settings beyond the standard clinical therapy rule. Impressively, there's also a chapter in the book that looks at the common factors associated with successful helping relationships, something we think is essential to talk about regardless of the therapeutic approach being used. So we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you again for joining me here on Leading From Behind. In episode 15, we'll continue with our examination of follow-up sessions. In that episode, we'll return to our ongoing case example and spend time looking in detail at the process of eliciting, amplifying, and reinforcing what's better with the client since the previous session. Now, if you have comments or questions about this episode or solution-focused practice in general, please feel free to let us know. You can leave a comment on the podcast page of our website at hbtc.ca or by sending an email to feedback at hbtc.ca. As a reminder, new episodes of Leading From Behind are available on or about the 1st and 15th of each month. You can access it via our website, or you can subscribe to the podcast for free through iTunes. You can find us in the training subsection of the education section. Also, if you're a regular or new listener to Leading From Behind, please feel free to give us a rating in the iTunes store. We're told that ratings, particularly the good ones, make the podcast easier to find in the iTunes store. And our thanks, as usual, to Dano of danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under Creative Commons license. So, until next time, I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I certainly hope you'll join us again. Music